On behalf of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. You'll remain standing and take your Bibles and turn once again this morning to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And our text for this morning, verses 11 through 14. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. If you'll follow along now as I read God's inerrant and infallible word. Beginning now in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Paul wrote this letter, as you'll remember, to the Ephesians as he was chained to a Roman soldier during his first Roman imprisonment. And following a very brief salutation, Paul began the actual letter to the Ephesians with this hymn of praise and thanksgiving to God for who he is and what he has done. And that's what we've been looking at over the last several weeks. But the question comes up, how could Paul praise God in prison while in such great difficulty? I mean, no doubt his ability to praise came from his focus. Paul wasn't focused on his difficult circumstances, but rather his focus was upon Christ. And as Paul thought about the glorious truth of of God's great plan of salvation, he couldn't control himself, and he burst out in praise and worship. And as he did, his enthusiasm poured out in one long sentence of praise to God from verses 3 to 14. And as you'll remember, he began in verse 3 with an exclamation of praise, which is really a a summary of the entire passage. And he said there in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. All things pertaining to life and godliness have been given to every believer. They are ours immediately in Christ. And then, as you'll remember, Paul begins to explain why God is so worthy of praise. In verses 4 to 6, Paul tells us that God chose us in Christ for salvation before the foundation of the world. And in love, he predestined us as sons for adoption into his family. In verses 7 to 10, Christ has redeemed us through his blood and forgiven all our sins. And this according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. He has given us wisdom and insight to know the mystery of his will. And now this morning, in the final verses of Paul's hymn of praise, he gives us two more blessings, two more reasons for which we should be worshiping and praising God. Number one, he has given us an inheritance. And number two, he has sealed us with his Holy Spirit. So on top of all of the other blessings already mentioned, Paul now tells us that we have obtained an inheritance. Look back at verse 11. In him... 
we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so the verse begins with the words, in him. In him, which clearly refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the source of our divine inheritance. Paul has used in him, or in Christ, or in the beloved in verse 3, 4, 6, 7, 9, and 10. I mean, all of God's blessings center in and come from Jesus Christ, and we have absolutely nothing apart from him. Apart from Jesus, the only ultimate and eternal thing a person can ever receive from God is condemnation. Well, certainly in his common grace, God makes his sun rise and he sends rains and and many other good things on all men, the just and the unjust alike. But his spiritual blessings, all of these spiritual blessings that we've been talking about and we'll talk about today, All of his spiritual blessings are only given to those who are in Christ. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I mean, Paul declared in verse 5 that our adoption as sons is through Jesus Christ. And here in verse 11 that it is in him that believers obtain an inheritance. It's through our union with Christ that we're brought into the family of God and and become heirs to the blessings and promises made by the Father. And so in him, in Christ, we have all of God's blessings. Now later in chapter 5, Paul will declare, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And although Paul only mentions three groups, it's not limited to those specifically named. And the point is simply that those who abandon the word of God and live immorally are not in Christ and therefore will not share in the blessings that Christ has secured. Now, Paul is not saying that everyone who commits such sins is necessarily excluded from God's heavenly kingdom, but rather he's speaking of those who are characterized by such a lifestyle. Those outside of Christ who live in persistent and unrepentant sin have no future inheritance in the kingdom of God. Those who will receive the inheritance are the ones who are in Christ and those who are walking according to his word. So back at our verse, Paul says, In him we have obtained an inheritance. We have obtained an inheritance. When something in the future was so certain that it could not possibly fail to happen, the Greeks would often speak of it as if it had already occurred, as Paul does here. We have obtained an inheritance. And we see this in chapter 2, where Paul speaks of God's having seated us with him in the heavenly places. And although Paul and his readers had not yet entered into that glorious experience, their dwelling eternally with the Lord was just as certain as if they were already in heaven. And so Paul says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. And the phrase, we have obtained an inheritance, is actually one compound word in the Greek. And it only occurs here in the New Testament. And it's extremely difficult to interpret as seen by the various translations. It can be translated two different ways. 
It can be translated, we were made an inheritance, which would mean that believers are the inheritance that God obtains, which is a concept found in both the Old and New Testaments. Or it can be translated, as it is here, we have obtained an inheritance. And translated this way, the word means just the opposite. It means it is believers who obtain the inheritance. I mean, both translations are true, both are consistent with other scripture, and both are great options. I mean, we are God's inheritance. And through Christ, we have obtained a glorious inheritance. And although either translation can be supported, in the immediate context, as in verse 14, Paul says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. And the parallel passage in Colossians 1.12 states that we share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And so Paul's emphasis in verses 3 to 14 makes the second translation, we have obtained an inheritance more appropriate here. And so the inheritance is something given by God to his people. It's just one more amazing, glorious blessing the Father has blessed us with in Christ. In him, Paul says, we have obtained an inheritance. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 3, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and fading, kept in heaven for you. As Paul said in Colossians 3.24, that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. So believers receive an inheritance. Why? Well, because God has adopted us into his family to be co-heirs with Christ. Romans 8.17 says, If we are children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. And as co-heirs, we will own everything with Jesus. Do you understand what that means? As co-heirs, we will own everything with Jesus. In Jesus Christ, believers inherit every promise God has ever made. Peter tells us that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness and has granted to us his precious and very great promises. As one commentator wrote, as co-heirs with Christ, God promises in Christ peace, love, grace, wisdom, eternity with him, joy, victory, strength, guidance, all our needs met, power, knowledge, mercy, forgiveness, righteousness, gifts from the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, fellowship with the Trinity, instruction from the Word, illumination, truth, spiritual discernment, heaven, a room in the Father's house, eternal riches, those and and every other good thing that comes from God. All of this, and he said, we begin to taste this in this life. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.9, as it is written, what eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And so as wonderful as the enjoyment of our Christian experience is here in this life, it absolutely cannot be compared to what is yet to come. 
We've been made joint heirs with Christ. And we are guaranteed possession of everything that he possesses. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. Again, Jesus is the source of our inheritance. Well, how has this happened? How do we have have such a status and such a future? How has this happened? Well, from a divine perspective, from God's perspective, it's according to his sovereign purposes. Look back at verse 11, where Paul says, In him we have obtained an inheritance. How? Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We are sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ, not by accident, not by chance, not by faith. We are sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ, and have obtained an inheritance because we have been predestined according to the purpose of him, of God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And Paul is, is echoing what he has already said in verses 4, and six, four to 6 even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us or graced us in the beloved. He predestined us according to the purpose of his will, to the counsel of his will. And you remember from our study of verse 5, that the word predestined means to mark out, appoint, determine, or decide upon beforehand. It means to predetermine or foreordain. And so predestination means that God determines something in advance. And Paul is assuring the Ephesian believers of their inheritance, which is both present and future, by reminding them again that God has predestined them to possess it. And God hasn't simply chosen and predestined his people with no purpose. God's divine purpose of predestination is specifically that those chosen are adopted into his family as a free gift through the completed work of Jesus Christ. And just as believers were predestined for adoption as sons into his earthly family according to the purpose of his will, so here, Paul tells us, they are predestined to receive an inheritance according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so the reason believers obtain an inheritance ultimately relates to God working out his purpose in history. I mean, three times in the span of ten verses, Paul reminds his readers and us that God adopts and grants an inheritance to his people. And he does so according to the purpose of his will, verse 5, according to his purpose, verse 9, and according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, verse 11. God's choosing, saving, and blessing his people is all a part of God's carefully considered and executed plan. And you'll notice that Paul says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Of his will. It's always according to his will. His will, not ours, is what determines absolutely everything. And the word translated here as works 
is the word from which we get our English words energy, energize, and energetic. And it means to implement, cause to function, to carry into effect. And so Paul is telling us that God works out what he plans. He's saying God originated his plan, God implemented his plan, and God oversees the execution of his plan. And so God not only makes the plan, he also makes it work out. You see, we don't have a God that set the world in motion and then stepped back just to watch the clock wind down. We're not not talking about fatalistic deism here. Even though God chose in the past and predestined in the past, he is presently working all things according to the counsel of his will. And so God cannot be accused of neglect. He is imminent, presently involved in creation at every moment to bring about all things. All things. I mean, there is nothing that happens outside of the counsel of God's will. Absolutely nothing. And though it's hard at times for us to wrap our minds around the inescapable will of God, it really is the most comforting thought and doctrine that we can have. I mean, God is in complete control of all things. God is working in history and in our circumstances. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And therefore, there's nothing that happens apart from his sovereign will. And our having a proper understanding of God's sovereignty is absolutely crucial for our spiritual life. You know, it is vital for living out our faith. We can live and, and minister in confidence because our sovereign God will provide for us, protect us, guide us, direct us, and he will enable and empower us. I mean, he is our shepherd, isn't he? And we will not lack. He provides for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, and he will certainly provide for his children. Having a proper understanding of the sovereignty of God is very important for prayer. I mean, if God is not in complete control of all things, then why pray? Why would you pray? Why pray to a God who doesn't control everything? I mean, how could you ever have faith that your prayers would be answered if God isn't sovereign and absolutely in control? God's sovereignty is also important for our comfort. I mean, how can you have comfort in a world that is ungodly, vile, wicked, full of demons and evil men, unless you have complete confidence that God is ultimately in control and working things all out according to his plan? And if you don't believe in God's sovereignty, you'll probably be a bitter, angry person, or at least a grumbler and a complainer. Because you're going to see things as being totally up to you or, you know, at, uh, uh, you know, it, it just all happens by chance or by faith. But that's not it at all. Because our God is sovereign. And it's a tremendous comforting truth that the scriptures tell us that God is sovereign. That he is working all things according to his sovereign plan. And that everything happens according to the counsel of his will. I mean, this means God has a plan for his people. And he really is working for our good. 
And so we can be assured that no trial, no difficulty, suffering, sorrow we experience is outside of his control. I mean, through faith, we will arrive in that heavenly place God has planned and is leading us to so that our trials, however great or difficult they may be, as one man said, we will see them as but turns of the potter's wheel as God shapes and fashions our character for his glory. I mean, as Paul said in Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, how can all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose if God is not in complete control? But he is. He is. And his sovereignty is a great comfort to us. Another thing Paul wants his readers and us to understand is that our salvation, redemption, and forgiveness together with our election and adoption are not ends, but rather simply means. And there's a greater end that is far above our salvation, and that is the glory of God, the glory of God. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now notice verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might what? Be to the praise of his glory. Be to the praise of his glory. And we'll come back and deal with the first part of verse 12 in just a moment. The praise of his glory. And of course, God's glory is the revelation and the manifestation of who he is. His essence, his power, majesty, purity, and and holiness. And therefore, to praise God for his glory is to declare that he is the one true God who made heaven and earth and to give him the honor due him. I mean, God has no peer. He has no rival, as the psalmist explains, the gods of the nations are idols. I mean, God is the one eternal king and and displays the majesty of his sovereign authority, and for that alone, he is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. God is also due praise for his plan of redemption. I mean, here Paul praises God's redeeming power and glory for the great plan of redemption he has enacted in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. More specifically, he declares that God has chosen us, both Jews and Gentiles, to praise his glory. I mean, Paul wants us to understand that redeemed humanity, all of redeemed humanity, exists for one reason, and that is to praise God's glory. But we are so man-centered in the church today that we mistakenly think that salvation is all about us. And, you know, really, thank God uh, salvation does rescue us from his awful judgment and wrath and forgives our sins and gives us eternal life in heaven. But we need to understand our salvation is primarily about God's glory. He saves us by his sovereign grace that we will be to the praise of his glory. Listen, he owed us absolutely nothing but judgment. God was not obligated to save one person. He owed us nothing but judgment and eternal wrath. 
but instead because of his great love. He gave us infinite love, mercy, and grace. And so even if we suffer terribly in this life, we can only praise and glorify God for his sovereign grace. You know, in the great doxology of Romans chapter 11, verse 36, Paul declared, For from him and through him and to him are all things. And so it is in our salvation. It is from him, that is, it originates from his purpose and will, and through him as he works it all out. And it is to him, that is, to the praise of his glory alone. And thus Paul concluded, Romans 11.36, To him be glory forever. Amen. And the ultimate end or aim of God's sovereign oversight of all things is that his glory might be praised, extolled, adored, and enjoyed. And so from a divine perspective, from God's perspective, in Christ, we have obtained a glorious inheritance because we were predestined according to the counsel of God's will. It's all according to God's sovereign purpose of will. I mean, this was the decisive factor, as it is in every conversion. But on the other hand, that certainly does not mean that we are inactive or passive in all of this. Here in the context in which our salvation and inheritance are attributed entirely to the sovereign will of God, Paul also describes our responsibility. From a human perspective, we have believed. And look back at the first part of verse 12, and then we'll look at verse 13. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ. This is the the first statement about the human side of our divine inheritance in Christ. And in this context, hope is used primarily as a synonym for faith. And so the first to hope in Christ were the first to believe in him. So who's he talking about? Who were the first to believe? Who was Jesus sent to? He came to his own, right? came to his own. They didn't receive him, but he came to his own. Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so in this verse, when he says, we who were the first to hope or believe, Paul has in mind the Jews. Because the gospel was first preached to the Jews. But most of the nation of Israel flatly rejected it. However, the apostles and other first-generation Jewish believers did receive Jesus as their Messiah and Lord. They were the first to believe. But in verse 13, Paul switches from the Jews to the Gentiles, and he indicates this by changing from we to you. The Gentiles who had been saved from paganism had a share in the mystery of God's will as well as converted Jews. And Paul now traces the steps by which the Ephesians and other Gentiles had been brought to faith in Christ. And this is the way that everyone is brought to faith in Christ. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, well, what's that? Well, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. Well, as he explains in his letters to the Romans in Romans 10, 17, Paul says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So Paul says, 
Here they heard the word of truth, the gospel. In other words, the good news that God has provided a way of salvation through the atoning work of his son, Jesus Christ. They heard this. And they responded positively to the message. They believed in Christ. And that is absolutely critical. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ must not only be heard, it must also be believed to bring salvation. As John said, but to all who did receive him. Well, all right, John, what does it mean to receive him? Well, he explains. Who believed in his name. So to receive him is to believe in his name. And to them he gave the right to become children of God. Paul said in Romans 10, 10 and 11, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So hearing and believing. And this is vitally important. Vitally important. Because many people have heard the gospel. Many people have heard the gospel in the sense that the sound of it entered their ears. They they were exposed to it. But they never believed it savingly because they never submitted their lives to it. But in the case of the the Ephesians, hearing was combined with believing. Hearing was combined with faith in Christ. They heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and they believed in him. And I want you to notice that Paul makes absolutely no mention here of works or merits, but only Faith in Christ. You say, what's the point? Simply this. That God's plan of salvation is such that he receives all the glory. Faith is something we do. It is something that we exercise, and by it, we are joined to Christ in salvation. But faith is not a work that originates in us by our own effort or merit. You say, how do you know? Well, because faith is God's gift through the Holy Spirit, which is a point that Paul makes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where he says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, he says, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He's saying that it's God who supplies the faith that we need to believe in him. And so see, it's all of grace. It's all of grace from beginning to end. Faith is the way we are joined to Jesus Christ for salvation in which God alone is glorified because faith is the result of his grace at work in us. And verse 13 really is a good definition of faith. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Of course, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, the proclamation of what Jesus did to save sinners. And the the gospel includes both historical facts and doctrine. The gospel teaches that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And by his death, he paid the penalty for our sins, thus gaining for us the forgiveness of our sins. And the gospel proclaims that Jesus rose for our justification. God accepted his sacrifice and appointed him the only means of salvation, because again, there is salvation in no one else. 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And faith means believing. It means believing the saving truth in Jesus Christ, receiving him as Lord and Savior, and committing ourselves to him. Salvation always and only comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And loved ones, this is why churches and Christians must proclaim the gospel. Our message is not the self-help methods of pop psychology. The message of the church is not political agendas. And certainly as Christians, and you've heard me say this before, I mean, as Christians, we should be good stewards of our citizenship by being informed about the issues and speaking out about the issues, being involved and voting and so forth, running for political office if you can. But the primary agenda of the church is not politics, because politics is not the answer to the problems that we are facing. We are a nation under God's judgment. And we are under God's judgment because we have rejected God, His Son, and His Word. And we cannot vote our way out of the consequences of our national and personal sins. And a change of political regimes would only be a temporal reprieve at the very best. The problem in our city, our state, our nation, and the world is that men and women have evil, unbelieving hearts. They are at enmity with God, hostile toward God, His Word, and His people. And the only answer is the gospel. And loved ones, the course of our nation will only be changed as the hearts of people are changed one at a time by the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only answer to our problems. And this is why churches and Christians must proclaim the gospel and preach God's word. Our message is not to be politics or political agendas, but Christ crucified and raised from the dead. You know, Paul said, and it's a verse I quoted earlier, but I'll repeat it again, for I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he stated, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God is raised from the dead, you will be saved. And Paul then defined the work of the church, saying, But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And those questions that Paul asked there in Romans 10, verses 14 to 15, the last ones I read, those are questions the church today must seriously consider. Because we live in a day when so many other messages crowd out the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection by which alone men and women can be saved. And so many churches today have become nothing more than social clubs rather than sinners where the word of God is preached, believers are equipped they're ready and ready to go back out into the world to live the gospel and proclaim the gospel. We have lost sight of the purpose of the church.
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. I mean, God has a plan for our salvation in which he is utterly sovereign. Yet at the same time, he has decreed the necessity of faith. And Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, show us the highest view of God's sovereignty and salvation right alongside man's responsibility to believe. And throughout Scripture, there is this tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. A tension that in our limited and imperfect knowledge, we are incapable of fully reconciling. You know, Jesus said that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, and that everyone who lives and believes in him shall never die. And the Bible's frequent commands to the unsaved to respond to the Lord Uh, clearly indicate the responsibility of man to exercise his own will in, in faith. But the Bible is also very clear that no person receives Jesus Christ as Savior whom God has not chosen. And Jesus gives both truths in one verse in John 6, 37. If you remember this from when we did verses 4 and 6. But Jesus gives both truths in one verse, John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So all that the Father gives me, there's our election. And they will come to him, he says. And then he says, whoever comes to me, there's our responsibility. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. God's sovereign election and man's responsibility to believe in Jesus Christ seem opposite and irreconcilable truths. And from our limited human perspective, they absolutely are. But though they may, we may not understand this, we must fully embrace it because the Bible clearly teaches both. And besides, and we embrace other truths, other truths mysteriously woven together like the deity and humanity of Christ, the divine human authorship of Scripture. In the Bible, God repeatedly commands people to trust in Christ for salvation. And we should be obedient to those commands regardless of how well we do or don't understand God's sovereignty and man's responsibility because God commands all people everywhere to repent. And so if you desire to be saved, then come to Christ. Come to Christ, repent, turn from your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are lost, It is because you chose to be lost, not because God desires it. it. The blame does not rest on God. It rests on those who do not believe in him and reject his kindness, love, mercy, and grace. Why? Because they willfully reject God's offer of salvation, and therefore they will bear full responsibility for their own condemnation. In verse 11 through the first part of verse 13, we have the promise of God that in Christ we have an inheritance, and that inheritance was predestined from before the foundation of the world according to the purpose of God who works all things according to the counsel of his will to the end that 
we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. But what's our guarantee of those blessings? I mean, how can we know that these are true? Because how many people do you know call themselves Christians but live their lives every day no different than those in the world? How many of us live that way? You know, constantly vacillating back and forth between holiness and being far from holy. How many of us live caught between our spirit and our flesh? You know, which will win? How can you be sure? You know, what if God gets, gets tired of our, of our struggle and just casts us out into the darkness? So how do we know? How do we know that these blessings are guaranteed and that they're, they're true? Well, there's one more spiritual blessing. And that spiritual blessing is the guarantee of all the others. The fourth reason, the fourth major reason we have to praise God is that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Look again at verse 13. In him you, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, now here's what we're looking at, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Or literally, you were sealed in him with the spirit of promise, the Holy One. You see, the moment we trust in Christ alone for salvation, every believer is given the very Holy Spirit of God. And that the Holy Spirit indwells us. He takes up residence in our lives. And this is an amazing truth which Paul affirms in several ways in Romans 8, saying, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, and the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And as a result of the Spirit of God living within us, the believer's life is different. And you cannot have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the living God, invade your soul and your life stay the same. As a result of the Spirit of God living within us, our lives will be different. Why? Well, because the Spirit is there to illuminate us. He is our resident teacher to lead us and guide us into the truth. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. He equips us for ministry by giving to us spiritual gifts, and then he enables and empowers us to use those gifts. The Holy Spirit is our helper and advocate. He protects and encourages us. The Spirit is a powerful presence within us as a resource for living the Christian life. In fact, the Spirit has his own agenda, which involves promoting and empowering a holy life and and making us more and more into the likeness of Christ. And this is consistent with the fact that he is the Holy Spirit. But here Paul says, and we believed in him, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now what's that all about? Well, the seal Paul speaks about is the kind... Uh, embossed on an official document to validate its authenticity, like that uh, that we would find on a passport or a birth certificate. And without the seal, the document cannot be accepted, but with the seal, it must. 
In Paul's day, a prominent person would choose an emblem as his official seal. And then using melted wax, he would affix an imprint of this emblem to an object, such as a document, a possession, etc. And he would do that because he wanted to identify it as belonging to him or coming from him or uh, that it was genuine. So this kind of seal that Paul is speaking about served several purposes. It was a mark of authenticity. It was used to authenticate or confirm something as genuine as with the seal on an official document. I mean, it has to have the official seal on it to be valid. Like, like today when a notary uh, public will authenticate your signature on an important document by stamping it with his seal. In this way, the Holy Spirit authenticates professing Christians as genuine. He assures us that we are his genuine children because false believers do not have the Holy Spirit. Secondly, this seal was a mark of ownership. It marked an object as one's property. I mean, today we, we brand cattle and other livestock, but in Paul's day, uh, they did the same, but slaves were also marked uh, in, in the same way as other kinds of possessions were. And one man writes, the fact that a believer is sealed with the Holy Spirit indicates that the one who arranged for the sealing, namely Christ, owns him. He bought you with the blood of Christ, and you now belong to him. No one can take you from him. Thirdly, uh, this seal was a mark of security. It marks something as secure, just as a seal was placed on Jesus' tomb after his crucifixion to keep the body from being taken. And likewise, believers are protected by the seal of the Holy Spirit. God sealed you with his Holy Spirit when you trusted in Christ, securing your salvation, and no one can break God's seal. And number four, a seal was also used as a certification of completion. It was used to certify the completion of a business transaction. So when the deal was sealed, you know, the purchase was final and the property changed hands. And so after Jeremiah bought the field at Anatoth, he took the sealed deed of purchase. And likewise, the moment the Spirit comes into the life of a believer, the process of salvation is not only commenced, but in a very real sense, it is also completed. The presence of the Spirit shows that redemption has been accomplished and the believer's salvation cannot now be stopped. And so at the moment of conversion, through the Spirit, believers are authenticated. We are marked as belonging to Christ. We are secured and protected from things that might separate us from God, and our redemption has been accomplished. The ransom price has been paid and accepted by God, and the believer's salvation cannot now be stopped. And this is why Paul could say in Philippians 1, 6, that he was sure of this, he was confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so we can be confident of our ultimate salvation because of the Father's sovereign election, the Son's perfectly accomplished work, and the Spirit's ministry of sealing us so that what God began, he is sure to finish as well. 
God the Holy Spirit sealed us. Our souls are marked indelibly as the children of God. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who, Paul says now in verse 14, is the what? Guarantee of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit not only seals us, Paul now tells us that he is the guarantee of our inheritance. And the word translated guarantee originally referred to a down payment or earnest money given to secure a purchase. And people often use this verse to compare the Spirit to an engagement ring. However, uh, that's not a good analogy. Because an engagement ring is not part of the wedding. It's a promise, but it's not a down payment. The better analogy is that of a down payment on a house because it is the first installment of the purchase price. Because the Holy Spirit serves as a deposit or a down payment, being sealed guarantees that the believer will acquire their future inheritance. In other words, the indwelling of the Spirit provides the divine assurance and guarantees that God's people receive everything God has promised and that Christ has accomplished for them. We will receive all of the fullness of the promised spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. They are assured and guaranteed with an absolute certainty that only God can provide. Because the Holy Spirit is the church's irrevocable guarantee. And so God is to be praised and worshipped because he seals those who hear and believe the gospel, thereby claiming them as his own and securing their future inheritance. And so this means that all who have heard and believed, those who have placed their trust in Christ alone for salvation, have been permanently sealed. And this guarantee is more than uh, simply a deposit that can be returned. No, it's a down payment with the guarantee of more to come. It's a down payment guaranteeing the believer's inheritance of salvation in heaven. And this passage is one reason I unequivocally believe in the believer's eternal security. I mean, Paul could not be more precise. All those who have believed the gospel of salvation have been sealed. The transaction is complete. The Holy Spirit himself is the seal. And he is the guarantee of God's uncompromising faithfulness to all who believe. Paul says the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. Well, for how long? Until we acquire possession of it, he says there in verse 14. Until we acquire possession of it. I mean, the message that Paul is communicating here is that God so values his people That he has, he has made a down payment guaranteeing the completion of the transaction in the future when we and all believers receive the fullness of our inheritance as God's children. The resurrection and glorification of our bodies. I mean, in Romans 8.23, Paul writes, But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, he states, For while we are still in this tent, this, this body, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. 
Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 that when Christ returns, deceased believers will be raised in new glorified bodies and those still alive will be transformed or translated. You know, Paul says this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. He adds in 2 Corinthians 5.1, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And the Apostle John could scarcely imagine what all this is going to be like. But what he saw filled him with absolute amazement. He said, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. And Revelation 22, verses 3 to 5, vividly pictures the glory which we are now heirs of. There, John writes, no longer speaking of the eternal state. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. You see, loved ones, we we have absolutely every reason to rejoice. Because we are co-heirs with Christ. I mean, these things are certain and sure. They're not just a dim possibility if, you know, if the will is found to be in our favor. No, no, you could say that the documents are all signed and sealed. They've been made public and are held in trust until the day of their execution. And at that time, on that day, the fullness of our salvation will finally come. God will honor his down payment, make good on his promise, and pay in full what he guarantees to us now by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I mean, do you know what kind of a glorious day of celebration that is going to be? I read about a story. in which a very wealthy man who died left a a large inheritance to a very small son. And he left absolutely everything to the boy, but according to the stipulations of the will, the son could not claim full control over the inheritance until his 21st birthday. Until then, however, his every need was to be met, and he was to receive a generous allowance that would serve as a foretaste of the entire amount that was to come. And it's very much like that with us. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And throughout all eternity, we'll enjoy life in the new heavens and on the new earth as described in Revelation 21 and 22. You know, no more problems, pain, aggravations, sickness or death, no more tearful separations, emotional trauma, suffering and sorrow, and no more politics and disputed elections. (laughs) And until that day, but until that day, we can sing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. The Holy Spirit is our seal. He is our seal. God's guaranteeing the the inheritance won for us by our Savior until the day that we enter into it fully. And so whatever obstacles and difficulties come our way, 
we can be assured that the Holy Spirit of God will see to it that we will persevere in our faith until the end. We will not fail to enter our eternal inheritance. And in case you doubt that, later in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, Paul indicates that believers have been sealed for the day of redemption. We have been sealed for the day of redemption, which refers to the day of salvation for believers and the day of judgment for unbelievers. And so there is absolutely no doubt that that true believers will persevere until the end because the indwelling presence of the Spirit seals all believers and guarantees that they will receive their inheritance. You know, remember who Paul is writing to. He's writing to believers in Ephesus. And first century Ephesus was uh, as paganistic as you could get. It was a culture steeped in materialism, sensuality, gross, gross immorality, the occult, magical arts, all kinds of perverted, idolatrous practices. It it was an absolute stronghold of Satan. And from the perspective of a first century Christian living in Ephesus, uh, it was a hostile environment to say the least. And so what was God saying to them through Paul in this passage? And what is God saying to all believers when he tells us that he gives us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee or a down payment? Well, let me tell you. He is saying, my great desire for those who believe in me is that you feel secure in my love. I've chosen you before the foundation of the world. I've predestined you to be my children forever. I've redeemed you by the blood of my Son. And I have put my Spirit in you as a seal and a guarantee. Therefore, you will receive the inheritance and praise the glory of my grace forever and ever. And I tell you this here in Ephesians chapter 1 because I want you to feel secure in my love and power. I don't promise you an easy life. In fact, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom. I don't promise always to speak in soft tones of approval, but to warn you in love whenever you begin to seek security in anything but me. And let me say it again. I have chosen you, says the Lord. I have predestined you, redeemed you. I have sealed you by my spirit. Your inheritance is certain, guaranteed, because I am passionately committed to magnifying the glory of my grace in your salvation. As Paul says at the end of verse 14, to the praise of his glory. It's to the praise of his glory. This is the third time Paul has used this expression. He used it first about God the Father and his work of ordaining our salvation. You know, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
Verse 12, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance through faith, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the praise of his glory. And now in verse 14, the giving of the Spirit as a seal and a guarantee on our full uh, redemption is also to the praise of his glory. It's all to the praise of his glory. The work of the Father in eternity past, his glorious plan in the present, and extending to eternity future, brings praise to the glory of his grace. And this is always the reason for everything God does. It is not about us primarily, it is about him. It is all to the praise of his glory. God the Father has chosen us, God the Son has redeemed us, God the Spirit has sealed us. And this is what Paul has shown us in these opening verses of Ephesians. Salvation in all its parts is founded founded and flows from the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's, it's all to the praise of his glory. And so there's nothing left to do now but to join Paul in, in worship and declare God's praises to those who are not worshiping him. Because God is calling all men everywhere to praise Him for His mighty salvation. And so, loved ones, let's worship our triune God. I mean, this is what we were made for. This is what we were made for. We were made for praise and worship. And our hearts will only be satisfied when we begin praising and worshiping our great and glorious God. Your heart will never be satisfied with the things of the earth. Never. The flesh is never satisfied. Never. You just keep chasing one thing after the other, seeking to find contentment, and you never will not as a believer. Because a believer can only be satisfied when we are living for him and praising and worshiping our great and glorious God because that's what we were made for. We are to find our fulfillment, our contentment, our everything in him. And so all those people who were chasing after this and that and you know, never finding contentment, always, you know, always searching, never finding it's because they're looking in the wrong place. We'll never find contentment anywhere except in Christ and in Him alone. And so we need to worship Him, worship our great and glorious triune God, because again, this is what we were made for, this is what we exist for, this is why while we are here. This is why we are here, to worship Him. Why? Because it's all to the praise. A standing prayer. It's your love that makes me see. It's your word that comforts me by your blood. Been set free, and Lord, give to us a passion for your word that we may grow and walk in all.
behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. Grow.